Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Hi, Phil. Well, hello, Sandy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this morning you asked me if you should wear one of your Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. And I said no. Right. I said, you know, I like what you have on, and Mm -hmm. I'm wearing the plain black with a little yellow and orange sea car uh, colors here on my necklace. Is that a Kenyan necklace? It is. Sammy brought it back for me. Uh, Sammy's back in Kenya now. She is. But let's stay with the Hawaiian shirt thing. I'm going to get sad. I'm glad that you didn't wear your Hawaiian (laughs) shirt today because our guest has on one, and I think that we would have clashed a little bit. It's a little. It's It's subdued for you. It is, but I do like it. I'd wear it. Good. Good. Subdued is not a bad thing. So our guest is Don Furtman. Don, you want to say hello? Hello. (laughs) I you don't. said that like with a real radio voice. Yeah, that's from my my old radio days. You were on the radio. I was. I was on the radio for like ten years. What? Where? And what station? WNHU at University of New Haven, eighty-eight point seven on your FM dial. Mm-hmm. And I was actually one of the founders of the radio station. I helped build the radio station from the ground up. We went on the air on June 4th, 1973, and uh, I was, uh, you know, one of the first DJs. I was the program director. I was the music director, and I was on the air even after I graduated Mm -hmm. for 10 years up until the 10-year anniversary of WNHU, which turned out to be my crash and burn because I'm a person who's in long-term recovery, believe it or not, I do believe uh, that. from alcoholism, mm-hmm. and because uh, that tends to be a theme, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, somehow my the anniversary of the radio station coincided with the anniversary of uh, my the beginning of my recovery. Let's put it that way. Wow. So that was, what year was that? Your recovery started, 83 then? 83, right, on the 10-year anniversary. So I'm a person in long-term recovery, which means I haven't had a (laughs) drink or a drug since June 6th, 1983. Congratulations. Thank you. That is, uh, that's quite the run. Congratulations. Continue. Yeah. (laughs) Continue. And and your tenure as a DJ was some pretty amazing music coming out during those decades. Yeah. That decade. No, the 70s. I've already told you about this. The 70s was the decade of music. The 80s, All right. not so much. This is why I'm a better listener on the podcast. What? He started DJing in 1973. I know. He got out in 83 because the music stunk. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, it's that's the thing about music, right? It's an individual uh, taste. We, we don't ago. share. Right. Yeah. Well, here's no, the other taste. thing. I, I was in a rock and roll band uh, during the from the mid 70s to 1981 82 thereabouts and uh it was right when punk and new wave were happening yeah and actually i'm a big fan of new wave so that mm-hmm. was one of the good things that came out of the 80s you know Debatable. Like when you when you <laughs> get into you're, you're not a punk fan what do you think about the ramones phil i like them 
I, I was saying that, well, the new wave and some of this stuff was a little out there for me. But see, Sandy's a little more tempered. She's like the yacht rock radio type person. Yacht rock. <laughs> I'm more of an R&B blended with country right. with a dash of pop. Oh, you actually described that like you put a lot of thought into it. Yeah, we had a lot of car rides recently, long car rides with your musical taste. If he really wants to provoke me, he puts Grateful Dead on. Oh, so you're a deadhead, Phil. Um, Not so much at the time, but more recently that I really, I watched the documentary, rekindled my interest and just uh, really took a new interest into listening to how they played and how everything fit together and and kind of fascinated by the brilliance of it all. Uh, Are you into Joe Russo's Almost Dead? No. (laughs) I don't even know what that is. Actually, they just sold out. There's the new, you know, here in Connecticut, we have various musical venues, and they just sold out what used to be the tennis stadium in New Haven, uh, now they've turned it into a concert venue, and these guys sold it out for six nights. And what they are is they're a band that does Grateful Dead and Grateful Dead-oriented music. Well, does the and league people of, love these guys. Yeah, but does the lead guitarist have all his fingers? Um, unfortunately, he does, so it's yeah. just not quite as pure <laughs> right, I agree. as you know Jerry and his missing middle <laughs> oh, finger. Yeah, look at Don. He's like, what? <laughs> so what was the name of your band? Uh, I was in a band called The Crayons. The Crayons. Yeah, we were colorful, (laughs) new wave rock. And I was the orange crayon, uh, which meant I had orange hair, and back in those days, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I had orange clothes. Uh, I drove an orange Volkswagen Rabbit, and I lived in Orange, Connecticut. Come on. That was a requirement. I don't. And did the crayons ever have a big hit or anything? Or we actually got local airplay with a single called Cinderella Lovely. We're gonna have to check that and, out. Uh, on the way home it was on today. FM Future Music, which also featured some other local legends, uh, Jasper Rath, and Eyes, and uh, and a few others. Um, NRBQ. Pardon me? NRBQ. NRBQ were not on FM Future Music. Oh, okay. But they were local legends. Yes. And still are. Yeah. They're still going. Mm-hmm. Good old Al. Yeah. For real. Big Al Anderson. So did you grow up in southwestern Connecticut? I grew up, uh, I grew up, I born in <laughs> Delaware, uh, grew up mostly in Connecticut in the Bridgeport, West Haven area. Mm-hmm. I alternated between those two. Uh, and but I lived in practically every town in Connecticut at some point in my life. My my dad was um, you know here's the story part right. Um, my dad was an active alcoholic, as was my mom, and so my dad would switch jobs every two years. I don't think voluntarily, mm-hmm. and so every time he switched jobs, we'd move to a new town. So we moved to a lot of towns. So I lived along the shoreline. I lived in uh, Bridgeport, West, all those places. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a rolling stone, so to speak, just wandering around. Not Siblings? an actual rolling you stone. Have a lot but of I was, yeah. brothers and sisters? Uh, one, brother. one brother. I got a little brother, uh, Steve. He's about six and a half years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And he 
had, um, you know, had a whole different experience of growing up than I did. He was mm -hmm. not affected by uh, alcoholism. You know, he didn't get into drugs and alcohol, whereas I took to it like a duck takes to uh, like an orange crayon. Yeah, like a to duck, paper. Like a duck takes to orange sauce. I don't know. Oh my god! <laughs> that was good. There's 169 towns in Connecticut. Is that right? 169. What, That's you know, a lot of towns. It's interesting you say that because my wife and I just went through trying to name every town in Connecticut. Oh, you, you, you can't. We got to 130. You did. You did. But That's some amazing. Of, some of them obscure. didn't count though because, like we said, like Devon and uh, Woodmont which are actually suburbs of Milford. Yeah. They're not actual towns, so they actually oh, don't count. Like Simsbury has one that we go through. Well, I grew up in Windsor, so we have Aquana, Caden Station, Wilson, and Windsor proper. Uh, and those aren't real towns, but those are part of Windsor. Yeah, they're villages within the town. Oh my yeah, gosh. They're villages, that's what they're villages. called. But we're so oh. complicated. See, I just learned something. Yeah, that's yeah. so complicated. We live in the city of with Village Charm now, Manchester, Connecticut. Well, that's where I was born. Yes. Yeah, I lived outside of Manchester for all of three years, probably, or four, when we were in Ellington, right? In Rockville. So I haven't moved too far. You know, I've moved in so many different... I also lived in Florida for four years. I uh, grew up... I, I, I reached puberty in Florida. From mm -hmm. my, my mom finally left my dad, and we moved down to Florida. My little brother and I went down with my mom to Pompano Beach, Florida. It's mm -hmm. near Fort Lauderdale. And we lived there, as I said, for four years. Very confusing time in life, um, you know, going through, you know, the, the hormones and all the stuff that happens. Um, and living with my crazy alcoholic mom, who I love dearly and who did get sober, uh, I'll mention, um, it was a time in my life that I, you know, it affected me in a lot of very strange ways. Uh, one of the things that would happen is that my mom would come home from the bars late at night. She was a single woman and you know, she'd be out drinking. She'd come in about two in the morning. I was in junior high school. She'd come into my room. She'd sh shake me awake, bring me out to the living room, sit me down, and for two hours regale me with stories about what a miserable SOB my father was. Mm. And so I'd go to school <laughs> Later that morning, you know, disheveled and tired and dressed very weirdly because she wanted me to dress in a particular way. And um, what's a weird way? Uh, maybe like this. I don't know. <laughs> no, I just like what could be weird for. So you were like 12, 13, uh, something like school Hawaiian shirts. Uh, uh, imagine that you're you're in. You know, here you are. You're a thirteen-year-old kid. Uh, and you're going stage. to junior high school, mm -hmm. and your your mom dresses you in corduroy pants. Huh? Now you're in Florida. In Florida, corduroy pants that were white and blue and black swirlies all over the pants, and uh, she sent me to school in those. And the only thing that kept me from getting laughed out of school 
was the fact that under my arm when I went to school, I had uh, Disraeli Gears by Cream. I had The Doors, Strange Days. I had uh, Jefferson Airplane after bathing at Baxter's. Uh, and I had maybe even a Grateful Dead album, maybe even Live Dead. Yeah. But I had, I had these four albums under my arm. And that's the only thing that made me cool. Other than that, I was like a nerdy, geeky kid. So you had already bounced around all these schools in Connecticut, and now you're bounced into Florida in those circumstances. I don't, I don't know why you got involved with uh, alcohol down there. Yeah. When, when, I'm when, when fascinated, you. though, that you knew that carrying those albums was, was that like a protection Security thing for blanket. you? Or, what, or it, how did you, or were you just carrying them? I was just carrying them. I, I did not yeah. know that I was cool. I know that I heard... what. You know, I was into the monkeys. I, right. I have to be very honest. Yeah. But I still, to this day, consider the monkeys to be one of the great rock and roll groups of wow. all time. I love the monkeys. I'm I, not going to argue I, with you. And so, they're on my playlist. Up, I grew up with the monkeys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my dad came down to visit us in Florida, and he brought me my first stereo. And it was a Sears portable stereo. It was green. And it had, the turntable would fold up like this. And, you know, you'd pull the the turntable down and you disconnect. There was one speaker in the main box. And then you disconnect the other speaker and put it over here. And now you have stereo. Yeah. And the album he gave me, my first album to go with it, was the soundtrack to Dr. Doolittle. (laughs) No. Not the Eddie... Murphy. Eddie Murphy version, the Rex Harrison oh, version, oh. the original Dr. Doolittle film. And, you know, it was if I could talk to the animals, mm-hmm. and, and I'm listening to this, I'm like, eh, you know, well, it's not the monkeys. But he said, well, let's, let's go to the store and get an <laughs> album that you might like. Yeah. And what did I get? Sergeant Peppers. <gasps> oh. I have that. And oh, you the, got the Beatles version. I have the Bee Gees version. <laughs> <No>. Bee Gees. <laughs> Sorry. I, you know, I look, the first five Bee Gees albums I love dearly. All right. Then they got into, ha, 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 yeah, ha, alive. You know, but, but um, <laughs> anyway, it was like. Sergeant Peppers. Oh, it's Sergeant Peppers. And all of a sudden, oh, like, yeah. oh, like the vo- voices are over here and the drums are over oh, there. Yeah. And, like, things would go back and forth. And so I said, what else? Oh, I know I remember what the fourth album was. It was not Grateful Dead. It was uh, Jimi Hendrix. Axis, Axis, oh. Bold as oh. Love, Jimi yeah. Hendrix Experience. My first, my first album was Jimi Hendrix Experience. The and first it, album. It was seventy two or seventy three, and I got my first stereo. And he would play that song, and the guitar would go from one speaker to the other. And I had never heard anything so cool in my entire life. Exactly. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think about the. As you describe that, I think about the power of music, right? right? Yeah. And, you know, this is recovery matters, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to recovery and music, you know, how those things tie together. Yeah, talk about it. Yeah, can I tell a little music uh, story? I, I love it. That it comes to mind as I yeah. say this. Um, I was nine months sober. I was newly sober. And a friend of mine who also got sober. He and I were, we drank and drugged our way through college uh, at University of New Haven. 
And um, he had gone out to California and he had found God. He found God through Jesus Christ mm -hmm. and became a born-again Christian and got sober as a result of a direct linkage to his higher power. And he was getting married. And I hadn't seen him since he moved out to California. Mm. But a friend of mine called and said, oh, yeah, Bill's getting married. And why don't you, uh, uh, why don't you come out and surprise him? So here I am, nine months sober. And so at the end of the workday on Friday, I, I got a red eye and I flew out to California to surprise my friend Bill. But while I'm on the plane, I'm, I'm excited, I'm scared, I'm on an airplane for the first time since I got sober. I'm, uh, you know, I don't know where I'm going in my life. I don't know where I'm going in my job. Uh, you know, like a, a mm -hmm. lot of uncertainty in my life. And at the same time, my whole life at that point revolved around basically three things. I'd go to work, I'd eat dinner, I'd go to a meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, a meeting of a 12-step group, an anonymous 12-step group. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I do those three things. And that was my basically my whole life. It was like work, meeting, and, uh, and uh, dinner. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm on my way to California. And I've been doing nothing but reading, you know, AA literature and, and uh, uh, you know, focusing on my recovery. And I'm listening to, you know, I've got my Walkman, mm -hmm. you know, which was a thing that had a, a thing called cassettes. Yeah. And I had a cassette in there and I'm listening to my Walkman. I got my, my headphones on. I'm on the plane. I'm looking out the window. And uh, one of my very favorite bands is the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. And there's an album they did called Surf's Up, a wonderful album. They're doing a box set on that. It's coming out at the end of next month. <laughs> Sounds like a commercial plug. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and the song comes on uh, called Long Promised Road. Wow. And it's one of the most spiritual songs. The lyrics are very spiritual. And I'm listening to the song. And Carl Wilson sings so... Mm -hmm. So real the pain of growing in soul, of climbing up to reality's goal. Mm -hmm. And I started to cry. Yeah. And that song just like hit me, you know, that, you know, and it's all about like throwing off the shackles that are binding me down. And that's what I was doing. You know, I was, I was trying to grow in soul, but it was painful. Mm -hmm. You know, early sobriety can be painful because you don't have, I didn't have my go-to anymore. I didn't have my beloved bottle of Majorska vodka. And so I was working so hard to grow in soul. And um, the power of music, you know, just the way, you know, the melody in his voice and those lyrics hit me. And it's true, there are a number of songs that I can't listen to today without, you know, uh, the, the waterworks start. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, yeah. What's one of yours, Phil? Well, there's some Christian-based um, ones, and w one was actually on the Appalachian Trail about um, <laughs> Never Alone, and it's really about a song by Matt Redman talking about... Uh, and another one is Abide With Me. 
and it hit me at a right time where I would just start to weep. Another one was by Casting Crowns, which was called Life Song, and let my life song sing to you. And I was reflecting on the trail, probably like 20 plus years in recovery, and and wondering, you know, all my work in recovery and with CCAR and my family, and now I'm gonna get choked up, is has my song sung to you? Which is what the song, let my life song sing to you, to you, God. And that's like, how do you live your life so deeply and so spiritually that it's really a song to God? And I just, every time I heard that song, I'd just start weeping. And I'd have my earbuds sometimes in a paradox. I'd go, are you listening to that song again? And I'd be like, you can't help it. I can't help it. And then another time, my music connected my past, my addiction past with my recovery was probably three, four years in recovery. Back at UConn, I was drank and drugged my way through UConn. I found a lot of music, though. I found, I've... Speaking of music. It had to show up, right? It just had to show up. At the seaside. I, I... I listened to a lot of Steely Dan, like just stoned and drunk out of my mind. And so when I got into recovery, I kind of switched my music because it was like a new life. And I didn't, I didn't um, associate with like that was my past life. And then three, four years in recovery, I bought a new CD. CDs had just come out instead of the albums. So I bought Katie Lied by Steely Dan. And I put it in our big stereo, big speakers in my living room and all that. And the music just overwhelmed me because it was so beautiful. And I realized that everything in my past was not bad. You know, because I was almost had like this demarcation that before my recovery date, that was all bad. And now everything's going to be good. And there were, And this music bridged the gap and helped me to see that I really started to embrace it. I was still the same person. I had an, a disease that caused some ba- bad behavior, if you will, but I wasn't bad. And that one album, Steely Dan, Katie Lie, did that for me. Wow. That kind of thing. And, and how about you, Sandy? Yeah, I mean, music is how I connect with my higher power. Um, and the thing that comes to mind is when Phil was going through stage four cancer treatment that this album by Michael W. Smith filled with songs that I would listen to daily, but one was Healing Rain. And he didn't know that I was listening to this album or he wasn't completely all together, all together. And we had an, uh, um, we had a drive to the emergency room that was an hour and 20 minutes and I played that song for him. And so it became something that really connected us. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you used to talk about your past though, where you found comfort in music on your oh yeah well so I grew up youngest of five 14 years after the four kids so they were all out of the house and I was left behind with parents whose values didn't mirror ones that I aspired to so I would lay down in the dining room where the stereo was I would lay down every night in the dark on the floor just listening to my albums escaping into the stories that the songs provided 
to escape my life because they wouldn't let me. They had a lot of rules, so I certainly wasn't spending a lot of time out of their care. Um, but I could escape in the music, in that quiet and in that darkness. And today, Don, um, Cindy and I have had, we've raised four kids together. Uh, the last one's still in the house. And we spent a lot of time on Sundays in church. You know, that was kind of a thing. And there are a lot of reasons, but we don't attend church regularly anymore, if at all, <laughs> in the last. But what we have found is that if we drive to visit my dad in Rhode Island every Sunday morning, and either put on like Christian praise music or country Christian music or whatever that it helps us connect and rekindled our marriage in a lot of ways. Music is so prevalent in so many ways. And what's it like for you today? Uh, you know, that's um, so true that music continues to be mm -hmm. a theme. Uh, so here's another story that just happened two nights ago. Mm -hmm. I was hosting uh, a men's spiritual group at my house. I remember this group and we go to each other's houses and do this periodically. And uh, my sponsor was there. And my sponsor is someone who I love dearly. And my sponsor is not going to be on this planet very much longer. He's getting ready for the great journey mm -hmm whatever comes next mm -hmm. and and he knows it and we all know it mm -hmm. and I was so we had about 21 men in my backyard and um, there was a 19 year old luthier there mm -hmm. uh, speaking of luthiers because we got Don over here who was, who was also <laughs> and what, what a, is a, a luthier a, somebody who builds guitars who right is that uh, does that sound about right and uh, so he was brought along by his grandfather, who was a member of this group. And my sponsor's son was also there visiting from California. He's a musician. And, you know, I'm, I've been known to dabble in music. <laughs> so I had told him about this custom guitar I had down in the basement. And he was interested in seeing it. So after the... First of all, the meeting itself was beautiful because we talked about spiritual experiences and we shared our spiritual experiences different experiences that you know each of us have had uh, most the majority of whom are in recovery the folks mm -hmm. at this meeting and that was you know and you could see my sponsor Paul just like taking all this in and then my sponsor's son whose name is Jonathan and this luthier, whose name is Nico, mm -hmm. uh, and I went down to the basement when everything was over and guys were leaving, and I showed him the guitar. So he picked up the guitar and he started futzing around with it. So I said, oh, here, so it was already plugged in. I turned on the amp, and then I picked up my bass, and then Jonathan went behind the drums, and we started to play. You know, we just were jamming on some blues, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, blues and E. So. We just started to play, and then we switched off. Then you know, then I gave Jonathan, who was primarily a bass player, the bass, and I went behind the drums, and and we played again. And Paul, my sponsor, came downstairs, which isn't easy for him to do, and because uh, I have a little studio down there, you know, kind of about this big, mm -hmm. and. Um, 
we were playing it, and he looked in, and you could just see the look on it. He was just beaming, you know, just watching us play and watching this kid. He was a great guitarist, this, mm. this kid, uh, you know, wailing on the guitar, and he's watching his son play, which he never gets to see. I'm playing, you know, it's, you know, and I've talked about my my uh, music career over the years, but he never actually saw me play. So we're all playing. Oh, wow. And I could just see what that meant to him, to my mm-hmm. sponsor, just being able to take that in. Uh, and so that, once again, was, you know, the the power of music and how it brought this little group of people together, you know, just jamming on the blues. It's so powerful. Um, just briefly, my uh, one of my sisters was passing four days in the hospital and we were playing all her favorite music over the course of the four days she's she's in a coma and what, what are some of the artists i always find that fascinating engelbert humperdinck <laughs> yeah. tom really jones me, let me go. karen yeah. carpenter yeah. Um, beautiful voice but uh-huh. her oldest grandchild who was probably 16 14 16 at the time on the fourth day, came in and played this song called Set a Fire. He really felt called to come in and play that for her, and she passed away during that song. And, um, you know, those four days were really meaningful, the, the songs that she had loved in her life. But this song was a faith-based song, and, and it's ultimately how she was called home. So power of music is um, just... Extraordinary. I think as a recovery tool that I find that times when I'm out of sorts a lot of ways or even sad or I don't, I don't, I guess I get depressed, but it's not a a deep depression once in a while. Like it's sad or melancholy. But if I am in like a vehicle, let's say, that has a good sound system, and now you can just plug in your phone and Spotify, which is like a long way from the Walkman and cassettes, right? Or carrying the albums under your yeah, arm. Because you got everything. And you just hit a song, and the energy of how it shifts your entire emotional state is extraordinary. And when you pay attention to that, why wouldn't we be listening to music? Why do we revel in these moods or these attitudes when you could just probably listen to a song and or a series of songs that you probably know that would change your entire outlook sometimes we just like to sit in our own poo if you will i don't know what that's about yeah you know, the uh, pity pot i think we would call that sometimes right. <laughs> or put it well if i want to sit in it i'll just uh play neil young over and over again <laughs> <laughs> and feed that I, I, yeah, I totally get that. And on a related note, mm-hmm. uh, I, I know that you... Related uh, note? <laughs> oh. um, we had, um, I, know, I know you had Scott Strode as a guest yeah. recently. Yeah. And uh, Scott, is, he's the executive director of the Phoenix, and I'm the chairman of the board of the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, we're doing is we're branching out into music. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if Scott talked about that, but that, mm-hmm. but that's you know for me, 
that's something I'm really behind, and I'm uh, really hoping that that takes on a life of its own because of that very reason, uh, that music and recovery are so intertwined, I believe, and that music just has that, what is it, music has the power to charm the savage breast or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that savage breast that I brought in here was my addiction, and you're right, it changes one's outlook. It has certainly done that for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had mentioned that idea of you took music, you know, from your previous life, you know, right, your pre-recovery life, yeah. and oh no, that has to go on the shelf. Right. I came back from rehab, and I walked into my living room, and there's my guitar sitting there, I took that guitar and I put it in the closet because I thought sex and drugs and rock and roll, that's all over. Right. I'm never going to play guitar again. Mm-hmm. But then after a period of time, I was feeling the need to play something. You know, once, once you've listened to music, you want to continue to listen to music. Once you've played music, you want to keep playing music. So I went out and bought a piano. Because <laughs> I figured, well, that won't get me into trouble. You can't right. put that in the closet. I never, right, I never played the piano before. So I, bought, I went out, I went to Macy's in New York, and I bought an upright piano just to have in my, just to learn how to play. So I sat and figured out how to mm-hmm. you know, make chords and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was that idea that music, you know, was my, my music career had to be behind me because now I'm sober. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, my whole life at that point was revolving around meetings, dinner, work. Right. That was my whole life. And I had not developed yet the ability to start socially interacting with people sober, mm-hmm. in a sober manner. And I didn't know how to do it. You know, I was one of those guys that when it came to meetings, I would show up right when the meeting was started, and as soon as the Our Father was done, I was out the door. Mm -hmm. So you didn't get to know me. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't conceive of at the time was imagine if there were a network of sober musicians that I could go play with. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe I could play again because I wouldn't feel like I'm being drawn back to the bars or I'm being drawn back to the old crowd. I have an opportunity to actually play music with other sober people and connect with each other. And that's exactly what we're doing at the Phoenix. Perfect. We're starting to bring that together. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Were you able to do it back in your early recovery? Uh, it was a long time, and my friend Bill, who had moved to California, mm-hmm. he moved back to Connecticut to plant a church. He's, uh, uh, his church is the Vineyard Church, mm-hmm. and they had started in, uh, he had started one in New Haven. And when he moved back, uh, we actually got together and said, hey, why don't we play a little bit? And we got a couple of other friends, and we started, a sober guy started playing together, and we got the chance to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, you know, I played on and off with some of my old crayon guys. And yeah. <laughs> my old crayons. My old crayons. Guys. Yeah. The old crayon guys. Yeah, I got together with Green and Chartreuse. And, uh, <laughs> you guys are inspiring me because I left 
my comfort dancing, like whatever kind of dancing behind in my addiction, because I was the most excellent dancer when I was drunk. Um, <laughs> I got to find a way to let that back into my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have to start that then. We have to start the Phoenix dance. There well, you go. Uh, it's and physical too. I think a lot about Sikar uh, and music, and there's been opportunities, and Don's in here, and we have other musicians, and yeah, what is the role of that? It's really. And I just saw something on social media, too, about uh, we're not paying enough attention to, to the power of music. We're, we're just not doing it. And it's very individualized, but we don't make a concerted effort. Even here, like when I train the Recovery Coach Academy, I always put music in the beginning when people are coming into the classroom, whether it's virtual or in person, at every break when people leave. And they notice that right away because even in a training or a classroom, it sets a, a completely different atmosphere that if you walked into a classroom with music playing, you'll have a whole different experience than if it's dead silence. I, I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the Beach Boys, only because I spoke of them a while oh, yeah, back. Yeah, speaking of the Beach Boys, there's a <laughs> tangent, all right. There's uh, a song called Add Some Music to Your Day. Yeah. It's on their album called Sunflower. Mm-hmm. And I recommend listening to that music because, or that song, because it espouses exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about how music... When you add it to your day, and it describes a whole bunch of different ways to add it from the uh, from the dentist's chair to you know hearing it faintly in the distance when you're on the phone, uh, how when music is added to your day, it just does that much more for you. So you've been in recovery since eighty three. So I'm thinking that's got to be when I graduated like, high school. Uh, it's got to be like something like I got like thirty eight years or something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah, and we were talking earlier that I got into recovery when I was twenty eight, and you were twenty nine, which was pretty young at that time. So over those decades of recovery, um, have you always been playing an instrument? Would you say mostly all the way through and? I do want to talk a little bit about your career and your television appearance and all that kind of stuff because that was a big moment for the recovery in a lot of ways too. But was music involved some way throughout all of that? Once I got that piano, you know, I, I started to get back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost impossible to let go of music once it's part of you. Oh yeah. And so I was always listening to music. I never stopped that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it came to playing, uh, eventually that guitar came out of the closet. Mm-hmm. And then you know, when I got together with you know, a few of my sober friends and started to play, I tried to do that as much as I could. Honestly, I hadn't played in a couple of years. Things have just been very busy in my life, and, which is funny because I just retired in January, <laughs> yeah. yet somehow I'm busier than yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as a result, um, I just didn't have a chance to play. But when I picked up the bass just two nights ago, mm-hmm. it's like I played it yesterday. Hmm. That's it's the like the bicycle thing, memory, right? Yeah, right? just it all comes back. Wow. 
Well, I was thinking about, too, about picking that bass up or the guitar out of the closet and our friend Arno, that he was in his using days was a, a fantastic saxophonist, could play all, all those instruments. And he had put it away for a while, and we were away on a spiritual retreat and learning about how often he played, and he hadn't picked it up since, really. So well, we, he had been in a plane crash where his father-in-law died, so wow. he hadn't picked it up and he was since the, that time. He was the pilot, and so we encouraged him to a small plane off the Cape back in, I think it was 75, actually, or something like that. But he... Um, he picked his saxophone up again, and he's played at our Lord, the Lord's Prayer at most of our recovery walks ever since. You know, it's just beautiful rendition, and so he incorporated music too back into his life. It's kind of a theme we've got going here that was completely unplanned, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> it's beautiful. All right. So many years ago. There was an episode on a television show. Would you would you be so kind to talk to us about that? And how, sure. Uh, yeah. It was one of my favorite shows, especially because I spent over three decades in corporate America, and so I loved watching that. And show. then you had the we had the meeting at the anonymous people showing too, and all that. So I'd love to hear that story, of how that unfolded. All sure. From yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm happy to talk about that uh, because the, like you, you said, important in that, uh, this stigma that goes with this disease of alcoholism and addiction mm-hmm. is so hard to overcome. Yeah. So when I had this opportunity, it's a show called Undercover Boss. Yeah. It's still on CBS, I believe. This show is still running. But yeah. This was in 2010. Um, we, the company I worked for, I was in corporate America for four decades, mm-hmm. and uh, at least until January. So, uh, and all of that corporate America was with a company called Subway, mm-hmm. which when I joined was a little tiny sandwich chain, and then grew into you know forty thousand plus locations yeah. around the globe. Uh, and I was the development guy, so um, uh, that was something that was a very exciting a successful career yeah, I would say it, yeah it was a it was a great career it was wonderful <clears throat> and uh, the thing was the folks from studio Lambert who produced undercover boss uh, came to our CMO our marketing guy and said you know hey, gee we want to have a you know they had done some smaller companies we want to have a company that's a little bit more well known we're picking Subway. Would you like to be on the show? So I happened to be at a meeting where I'm sitting with our founder and CEO, Fred DeLuca, who started Subway in Bridgeport, Connecticut, mm-hmm. when he was 17 years old in Amazing. 1965. So I'm there with Fred at, at this meeting, and the marketing guy, Tony, uh, speaks to Fred and says, you know, they want us to be on this undercover boss show. I'm not sure if we could go on it, if we should go on it, because you never know what they're going to reveal. But it would probably be a good idea because typically people feel good after they watch the show and, you know, there'll be some people featured and it'll be good for the brand. And Fred, who would always rub his chin, he started rubbing his chin and, <laughs> and he said, 
Well, I don't know. Uh, I've seen the show. You have to, like, be on the show, right? I don't want to go on the show. Everybody will know me. Why don't you have Don do it? (laughs) (laughs) And so Tony turns to me and said, so you want to be on Undercover Boss? Uh And uh, I said, sure, what do I have to do? All right. And next thing you know, I'm being interviewed and, you know, you go through a process. uh, And uh, next thing you know, you got a camera crew following you around. But they want to know the story behind the company and the story behind the people. Mm -hmm. So the people that the CEO or whoever, in my case, I was the chief development officer, uh, that the uh, executive works with, they want to know those stories. They want to know the executive stories. So when I I was being interviewed, in the back of my mind, I said, well, should I share my recovery? And it dawned on me, why not? People should know that. Mm-hmm. And so it came out, and I shared about having a meltdown at work, and you know, when I, th- I threw a jelly donut against the wall, and <laughs> and uh, and the next thing I know, I, I'm in rehab. Uh, and you know, and then they they kind of explored my you know my music career, and like you know like the whole they showed crazy pictures of me when I was in the band, and. Um, and I shared my addiction, alcoholism, and recovery story. And um, what happened was then the thing airs, and they include a segment on that. And uh, there was this guy named Harold, Harold Andrew, and he was in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And Harold, as he tells it, he was watching the show the night it aired, and he had, was two weeks clean and sober, but he was very shaky, and he had been rejected from a job. Uh, he had no prospects for employment. He had two felonies on his record because of his drinking, mm-hmm. and he's sitting alone in his apartment, and he's thinking about going out to the package store and getting a six-pack. And as he's thinking about this, the TV's on, and there's me, and I'm talking about being in recovery, mm-hmm. you know, for a number of years. And all of a sudden, he starts paying attention. And he's like, Holy, wait a minute! If this guy is in recovery and he got to where he is in this company, mm-hmm. I should be able to get a job. Mm-hmm. So it gave him hope. Wow. The next day, after, after the thing was over, I had a number of folks reaching out to me, including the Phoenix. Scott Strode, his brother, reached out to me and said, gee, you, you're in recovery and you're good at you know, helping companies to grow. Do you think you could help us to grow? <laughs> and so I flew out to Denver and met with those guys, and now I'm on, you know, on the board. Uh, but this fellow, Harold, he, he uh, emailed me. And I'm not even sure how he got my email address, but this email shows up, and he just explains what I just explained to you. And he said, I don't want anything from you. I just want to say thank you. Mm -hmm. And I was so moved by that. And I realized just because I had shared Mm -hmm. that I was in recovery uh, and done it on national television without 
stigma, without, like, this is what recovery looks like, Mm -hmm. folks, um, that it impacted this one guy and helped him stay sober another day. Mm -hmm. And I just sent him a message back saying, thank you very much. Fast forward two years later, two things happened at the same time. Number one, Studio Lambert called and said, we're doing an episode of Undercover Boss called uh, Epic Bosses. We want to know, like, what happened? Like, where are they now and what happened? Right. So they said, has anything happened as a result of you being an undercover boss? I told him about Harold. Mm -hmm. At the same time, our friend Greg Williams, uh, who is, you know, a, a... wonderful young man in recovery and also a a great documentary filmmaker and Mm -hmm. you know and a very active and very uh high profile in the recovery community here in connecticut and now nationally uh he was doing a film called the anonymous people and he interviewed me for that film because of the you know overcoming the stigma right and i shared the story of harold and what, what happened was Greg and his film crew went out on the road and they found Harold in <laughs> Indiana wow. and they interviewed Harold and they made a segment in the film or actually in the, you know, sort of the outtakes, but there was a whole segment on Don and Harold or Harold and Don mm-hmm. and what happened and there's, there's Harold and there's me, we're both reading the email and it was very powerful. But at the same time, the folks at Studio Lambert, Undercover Boss, wanted me to meet Harold. It just so happened they flew Harold up to Hartford, to Bushnell Park, right right down the street where you mm-hmm. do the recovery walks. Yeah. Uh, they brought Harold to Bushnell Park, and they drove me up to Bushnell Park, and they had me meet Harold on screen for the first time. And Harold and I hugged and cried and was, you know, and it was like, and it, now he had been sober two years, right? This is two years down the road. And then the last thing they filmed was right there at, at the Bushnell, they were holding the premiere of The Anonymous People, wow. featuring that Harold and Don segment. And the, the last thing they filmed was us going into the premiere of under of of, under, of the anonymous people, mm-hmm. and the next thing that happened was Harold and I came out on stage right at the beginning of the premiere of the anonymous people, yeah. and and shared our story, and then they showed the the, the clip, you know, or vi- or they showed the clip, right. and then we came out. Right. I forget which way it right. worked, but yeah. it all came together, and that's what that's something that I found. I'm glad you brought that up because now that I think about it. It's one of those many coincidences or God incidences or whatever we want to call them, the coincidences that are not coincidences or the coincidences in which God chooses to remain anonymous, um, that everything fell into place. I mean, we're talking about two major events all happening at one time Mm -hmm. that just lined up perfectly that... You know, and I've seen that so many times mm-hmm. in my life where things have lined up well beyond anything I ever could have planned, mm-hmm. and it turned out so much better. And that's the power of recovery. 
That's the power of spirituality and being plugged into whatever our higher power is, this sort of spirit of the universe that I can feel working right in here. Mm -hmm. uh, and how when we share our stories, what that power is. You know, and I look at, you know, Sikar and you know, the sharing of stories, like mm -hmm. watching some of the stories that, that folks have, uh, have shared. When we connect with each other like that, what could be more beautiful? And, you know, we, we save each other's lives. You know, that was an opportunity where Harold, he didn't go out to the package store. He stayed and watched the show. And now it's 11 years later. We filmed that in 2010. And Harold's still sober today. He and I are, are Facebook friends. Cool. And, and that continual sharing and a continual opportunity to connect with each other and that spirit that binds us all together, I found that through my recovery, mm -hmm. through you know, the, in my case, a 12-step program, but, you know, people find it coming in through the Phoenix, coming in through CCAR, mm -hmm. coming, recovery coaching, all these things all tie together mm -hmm. to help us find, excuse me, to find a life in recovery beyond our wildest dreams. You talk about that, those events, <clears throat> and I discerned that you were kind of reaching back to see what that was like and remember it. And CCAR hosted that um, showing of the anonymous people at the Bushnell. And I, you know, I sometimes forget the role that CCAR's had or I've had. And it's really about trying to do the best I can each day, not really looking, you know, looking in the past or um, uh, I believe the best is yet to come in the future but I try to be very present in the day and do my best each day that's what recovery taught me and then when you have an opportunity to look back and reflect a little bit you go dang how did all that happen because Sandy and I have had I don't know how many years now 28 years married 30 years together four children and all the highlights we've had in our life i mean when you look at your 30 plus years of recovery what are what were some of the things that you were you're so grateful for some of your huge highlights in that time <laughs> there it's hard to there's so many that's just it you know, right it's like, mm -hmm. i i think you hit it right when you said you just try to be in today yeah and today is like, you know, here's a highlight right here. I get to be on the podcast and share with, with the two of you. The highlights for us. And, and this, is, this, is, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, certainly the undercover boss thing and you know, just playing music again. Um, I have uh, a wonderful wife. I've been married and divorced in sobriety. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my first wife and I are very good friends. Um, we have coffee together now and then and you know chat about she's got two kids I have two kids now um, but because I was taught in the program not to burn bridges mm -hmm. we stayed friends mm -hmm. and that's a wonderful thing and then I got married the second time and my current wife 
um, my current wife. That's one of Phil's phrases. It's okay. I get it. My wife um, said, look, look, I know you're old. I was 44 at the time. I know you're old, but I want to have kids. Wow, She's a lot younger than I am. That's a whole story in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I had to agree to have kids. And I was like, look, I've gone through life. I don't need or want kids. And she talked me into having kids. And I am so blessed today to have two wonderful kids. Mm-hmm. You know, my son just graduated from the University of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's... You know, doing an internship and you know doing some good stuff. My daughter is a junior at James Madison in Virginia. Mm-hmm. She's pursuing nursing. She's going for APRN. So I'm, and I love these kids. You know, I, I can't even describe mm-hmm. that spiritual connection. Oh, you know, yeah. talk about a spiritual experience like yeah. we were sharing at my home the other night. Uh, you know, that first time I held my son in my arms Mm -hmm. and the first time I saw my daughter appear you know like just come into the world and realize it was my daughter and it was you know we had we had a name we had we only had a girl name we didn't have a boy name and we didn't know what what because we already had a boy and we didn't know what she was you know what it was Mm -hmm. going to be but out she came and it was and I said it's Caroline you know because that was the name that we had already picked right so Caroline arrived so my my son Dawson, my my daughter Caroline, my wife Betsy, I am blessed mm. so many times over the wonderful friends I have today. You know the connection that we have mm-hmm. uh, with you know the friends that I have. Scott Strode is one of those friends that I've gotten very close to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one. Thing after another, one blessing, for want of a better word, but that's a great word, one blessing after another that recovery has given me uh, as long as I stay away from a drink or a drug today. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What are your highlights? If you're going to, like, pick some over the last course of your recovery... Well, well, you know, obviously, I've always wanted to be a mother. So the four kids that we had, we renegotiated in the middle. So, <laughs> um, and you know, when I I burned out of a corporate career, I just basically bottomed out, burned out after thirty three years, and within five months. I'm working with students in recovery on a college campus, and I'm applying all the principles of recovery for my own situation at the time while I'm teaching and supporting others in it. It can only be a, a you know, a God thing or magic moment, recovery magic working in my life. Um, and then at a time where Phil and I had spent decades just working and running kids around, um, reconnecting and having these things in common. Now working in recovery together has been amazing. And then through my stepdaughter, through Phil's oldest daughter, grandchildren uh, has been, has met all the promises 
that I've been told being a grandparent would bring, um, you know, and being able to sit back and laugh a little bit at the trouble they give their parents. Mm -hmm. I think it's simple for me, but really (laughs) simple does not mean shallow as my sponsor, which we talked about. You've actually been at retreats with him before, but he always say simple does not mean shallow. But the, obviously, the the greatest blessing to me, and I, I owe it all to my relationship with the higher power, with God, is the family, with uh, union with Sandy and the family we have together. <clears throat> it's the career. It's the meaningful work that I've seen. I can't even believe that I've been here 22-plus years and the things that have happened and what we've been able to do and the people that have been reached through the team here is just uh, humbling in a lot of ways that, that I would even be a part of that. And I've also had the opportunity to have some adventures and that I never would have ever dreamed of. If I was still actively using, I couldn't have hiked 2,189 miles on the Appalachian Trail, had the support of my wife and kids and how much they still talk about it and what it means. And so I think about uh, a big book of AA, and I know talks about the promises, right? And I used to sit in meetings and listen to those promises and think absolutely none of them would come true. The last one being like, fear of financial insecurity will leave you. I'm like, F you, that ain't ever going to happen. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, I had like 17 cents in my pocket and I never thought. And then somewhere down the road, listening to the promises and I'm going, check, 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 check. And they went through the whole list uh, and they had all come true. And it's gotten even better from then, from there. I didn't even know how that happened. That, that, that's, that's awesome, Phil. And, you know, it, it's, you know, the promises, you know, I think because it, it, it starts with, um, uh, you know, that, well, you know, God will realize that God's doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. ourselves. And there are a number of things in there. But uh, it starts with we will know a new freedom and a new happiness. That starts almost immediately. Yeah. Right? As soon as we get free mm-hmm. from this mm-hmm. substance that controlled us for so long, that new freedom, mm-hmm. we get that right away. Yeah. And boy, there's a lot of happiness in that, being free mm-hmm. of, you know, the you know, king alcohol, denizens of his <laughs> mad realm, or you know, <laughs> like, you know, or free of whatever uh, right. substance it was. Right. You know, the, yep. the stuff the cocaine I used to snort up my nose, all that kind of stuff. Yep. You know, and 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 we're and we're again connected in all that. You know, I, I in fact I, I feel connected to you often, Phil, and I I've mentioned this to you before, mm-hmm. but you know I I like to hike, and because my kids are down south and you know, we travel around and we hike wherever we go, I can't tell you in what, how many different states I've crossed the Appalachian Trail, yeah. and every time I do. I think of Phil, <laughs> and I've sent you pictures, oh, right? Of yeah, that, like you know, several times. Well, maybe I should app- apologize app- for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful thing, you know. Like I, because yeah. Phil I think, had walked across here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Phil was here. You yeah, know, yeah. I was at one time. Yeah. The whole thing about the trail is, I'm still amazed that 
I did it just as much as anyone, just because it was, I just look back on it. I'm so glad I had the opportunity. What a blessing. And that's really what we've talked about is a lot about the blessings of recovery, the introduction of music, and uh, some incredible stories and outcomes of just l trying to live one day at a time in recovery. Is there anything you want to talk about with the Phoenix or anything else you'd want people to know about recovery and your journey or anything? Well, I think the, the Phoenix, you know, I think about recovery itself and this disease that we have of alcoholism addiction, uh, you know, mind, body, spirit. Mm -hmm. And Phoenix uh, tends to focus at least initially on you know that the body part right the you know the, the physical uh, piece in that uh, you know you have 48 hours of clean time you can come to a workout you can mm -hmm. come to a, a meditation you can come to a yoga class mm -hmm. um, and, or and you can do it virtually online now you know we've got virtual yeah. programming which was wonderful that was one of the things my sponsor said to me he said this to me off and on over the years, but the first, uh, he, when COVID was first happening, the pandemic and the isolation was starting, he said, look for the good that comes out of this. Right. And one of the good things was Phoenix very quickly pivoted to this thing that we had on the calendar for 2022, which was virtual programming. Yeah, Next thing you know, too. we're all virtual programming, mm -hmm. but the team really got that off the ground and it's out there. So just go to thephoenix.org mm -hmm. and check out our virtual programming and you can do a number of things there. Um, but, you know, the the thing with the Phoenix is, you know, watching the growth and watching the evolution, and we're in Connecticut now. Yeah. And as chairman of the board of the Phoenix, I was like, you know, I've been chairman now for over a year, and we're not in Connecticut yet. And mm -hmm. you know, we started in Denver. And uh, <laughs> I was so grateful uh, that, you know, we, we have a, a great, uh, uh, person Sydney Durand who handles the Northeast and mm -hmm. you know she she kind of oversees a, a big part of the country and she hired uh, a wonderful uh, program coordinator named Lee Stepanian uh, and Lee she's done a wonderful job putting mm -hmm. things together and connected with CCAR too and yeah. you know, oh, we've yeah. been doing some things together and um, now we have events happening right here in Hartford. There we go. And we've had some stuff in New Haven, and we're going to have some stuff all over the state. So we're really getting underway here in, in Connecticut. And for me, that feels so good mm -hmm. uh, to watch Phoenix grow because it provides that opportunity for folks to go in and you know, start addressing their physical health especially in early sobriety, mm -hmm. but at the same time, and more importantly, they get connected to a sober, active community. And I know I keep harping on this connection thing, but it's that connection that I believe makes 12-step programs work. I believe it's the connection that makes the Phoenix work. I believe it's the connection that makes CCAR work. That, you know, as we connect with each other, you know, you get two people together. Mm -hmm. You know, I connected. I connected with. I, oops. I connected with Harold 
through a screen, right, through right. a TV screen, yeah, yeah. but we connected, mm-hmm. and it worked. And he stayed sober another day, and now he's got 11 years under his belt. So the Phoenix begins those connections. And you know, as we branch out into music and into other things, uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a wonderful uh, place for folks to go in order to expand their recovery, continue their recovery, and interact with all the other wonderful organizations out there. And I'm very excited about our partnership with CCAR because I think Me too. we can do a lot of great things together. Yeah, I agree. Let's see how we can go help more people. Exactly. Or give them opportunities to help themselves, too. That's what it's all about. How you doing, dear? Good. Do you still wish I wore a Hawaiian shirt? No. I don't wish I wore a Hawaiian shirt. I didn't say I wish you wore it. I said you would have... You yeah, not looked good with Don yeah. here. I, I enjoyed your lime in the coconut shirt. Oh, oh me too. That I love that rough. shirt. That's a great song. It's not my favorite. The parrot one is my favorite. It's a great song, though. The lime in the coconut. Do you want me to sing it again? No. All right. Thanks, Don. Thank you. Thank Don. you, Phil. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at recovery matters podcast. And you can use the hashtag recovery first to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.